Amen. All right. So uh, good morning again. Um, my name's Eric, and uh, we are uh, a year and two weeks old now, three weeks old now at the story. Uh, our third week of existence last year was the first Sunday of, uh, of uh, spring break. And it was also daylight savings time, I think. And uh, it was the lowest number of people that we had ever. Uh, it was like uh, me and the 12 disciples. And uh, this looks better than that. So thank you all for, uh, I'm sure you all turned down your, your luxurious trips to Galveston for Jesus. You gave up Galveston for Jesus. Uh, you know, he took the cross for you, but that's... <laughs> Kind of the same thing, I guess. I don't know. Uh, no, I'm just so thankful that all of you made it here today. This is a really solid crowd for, uh, for a week like today, where you also lost an hour of sleep last night, which is an abomination unto the Lord. Can I get an amen? So I don't know why we can't do that on a Friday afternoon. Let's just speed up an hour Friday at 4 instead of in the middle of the night on Saturday. Right? Okay. Anyway. And then when we fall back, we'll do it Saturday night. Yeah. Right? Okay. All right. New rules. Okay. So anyway, um, I, I want you to uh, get your study guides, if those help you, uh, to get through uh, the sermon, uh, the very long sermon, apparently, according to my wife. Uh, this, is the, uh, this is the study guide. Uh, this is an easy way to stay connected with kind of where we are in the sermon. Um, and if it's your first time here today, uh, you're in part five of a six-part sermon series, and uh, that can be a little weird. But we really plan these sermons out so that they all stand kind of independently on their own. You don't have to, it's not a comprehensive exam at the end of this, right? So you, you, uh, you, you can really not feel behind, I hope. And uh, you also, if it's your first time here today, a special welcome and a special treat for you is that you came on Sin Sunday. We're talking about sin today, which is everybody's favorite topic. Uh, so um, we don't always talk about, you know, sin and blood and all that stuff. But I do think it's important that we talk about it and really make sense of the stuff we just sang about. Those of us who've been in church all of our lives, it's not a big deal to sing about being redeemed by, you know, all the blood that Jesus poured out. For somebody that's new to the church, it feels very weird and kind of off-putting to sit here talking about a fountain filled with blood that we want to go take a bath in. People think Christians are very weird people for talking about that, which, you know, if you think about it objectively, it kind of sounds strange. But we're going to make sense of that today if we talk about sin and forgiveness, I hope. And uh, that's one of our goals today. And, uh, and hopefully by the end of this, some of it will come together for us. Um, I think one thing, regardless of whether you're a believer or not, a theist or an atheist, I think one thing we can all agree on is that things in the world don't seem like uh, they are as they should be. That things, the way they work in the world are not the way they ought to be working. There is a, a sense that we all kind of have that there is still some injustice going on in the world. And again, that, that, that really transcends religious identity. Whether you're a theist or an atheist, most people would say, yeah, not everything in the world is the way it should be. You ever get that feeling? Like things are just a little off with the world? Uh, I get that feeling quite a bit. As a pastor, you get called into all these things, usually very difficult situations in people's lives. And I sit there thinking, this is not the way it's ought, it ought to be. This is not the way it should be, right? Uh, funerals do that to me a lot, you know. Um, most funerals that I've sat in, I've thought, man, I wish it wasn't this way or this isn't the way this ought to be if a funeral is in some tragic circumstances. I remember one funeral in particular where I had a very strong sense that this is not the way it ought to be. It was when I was 21 years old. Uh, my wife, Giovanni, and I were uh, pastoring uh, a church for the first time together in the sticks of northern Louisiana. 
um, in a town called Mooringsport, Louisiana. Anybody know where Mooringsport is? One person in the back. Two people in the back. Hey, y'all. And uh, <laughs> that's, this is the population of Mooringsport right there, the three of us. Uh, so uh, the, uh, the, the, the church there, you know, they, uh, they wrapped us in love and just loved us, and it was great. But um, I got a call one afternoon when I was 21 years old to come and help with a funeral. Um, it was the funeral home from the neighboring town that I wasn't real familiar with, Oil City, which some of y'all might know, Oil City, Louisiana. Uh, the funeral home over there called me and said, Pastor, we've got a situation. The daughter of the mayor of this town has been killed in an accident. And their pastor is away on vacation. And they need you uh, to come and do the funeral tomorrow. So I had done one funeral before as a pastor. I had one funeral under my belt. And that was for a 98-year-old woman who died of natural causes, whose family I knew pretty well. Funerals are never easy, but that's the closest thing to an easy funeral that you're ever going to have as a pastor. That funeral kind of leads itself, right? But this would be different. This young woman wasn't much older than me when she was taken. You know, this, this young woman was uh, African-American. Most of that part of the town she lived in was African-American, and it wasn't a part of town. I wasn't even sure where this funeral home was. I wasn't super familiar with her, and these were just, you know, tragic circumstances, and so uh, honestly, if I'm really honest, I was very nervous uh, in no small part because I wasn't sure I had the preaching chops or the stamina to carry a southern black funeral. Like, that was what was really on my mind. I was like, I don't think I can do this. You know, I was praying and preparing all night, and uh, they, they uh, gave me, the funeral director gave me the phone number for this girl's family, and I called the family. I talked to an aunt of the girl, and, uh, and uh, she told me a little bit about this young woman, um, said that she was a cheerleader, uh, full scholarship, you know, as a cheerleader. She uh, was a vegetarian, said she uh, loved to run long-distance races. She was an athlete. She ran marathons and, you know, half marathons whenever she could. And so I just gathered all this information and tried to prepare my remarks for the funeral the next day. I got up in plenty of time. I left the house in plenty of time, but I could not find this funeral home. So I was late for the ceremony. And I walked into this funeral home. It was packed with people. And uh, I could hear the ceremony, the music starting inside. And the funeral director came and took me by the arm and said, follow me. And uh, he led me to this back door where I could kind of sneak in through the choir loft. And the choir was all there, but I just kind of snaked through the choir loft and made my way to my seat. There was another guy sitting there, you know, uh, up there with me, a, a large, heavyset black man with a, a collar around his neck, you know, the priest collar thing. And, uh, and so... Uh, the, the aunt had told me that someone would be helping with the service, that I'd have somebody doing a prayer or a scripture reading, and so I just assumed that was him, and I, uh, I went on. But as I sat there and the service was beginning, I just had this feeling that something was off. I looked around, and I was like, something is not as it should be here. Something is not right. But I just assumed it was because this was such a foreign uh, culture to me. This was not, you know, what I was used to, Right. But, uh, you know, as I often do in awkward moments, I make them more awkward. And I just uh, leaned over uh, to the guy sitting next to me, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm real glad you're here today because it's really hard to be up here all by yourself. Am I right? And he just stared at me. No words. He just stared like this. And then I said, you know, I doubled down on the awkwardness. And I said, <laughs> I, said uh, I, I said, you know, as soon as this first song's over, I'm going to hop up and say some remarks, and then I'll hand it over to you. Is that, that okay? He just stared at me again. 
And uh, so I just uh, sat there getting my, my head straight, uh, wondering what in the world's going on. I just had to sense someone right. About 25 minutes later, that first song was over. And uh, <clears throat> the Holy Spirit was moving in this place, man. And it was, the Holy Spirit was just all over it. And I, I, was, I was fired up. And I hopped up out of my seat as the song was ending. And I just I slipped right into that role, man. I was like, uh, uh, hallelujah. And they all said, and I said, amen. And they all said, amen. I said, God is good. God is good. Oh, y'all don't get it? No. <laughs> y'all are whiter than me. God is good all the time. All the time? Very good. All right. Good, good, good. All right. They talked back to me, man, and I loved every second of it, you know, and I just leaned into that moment. I said, dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to say goodbye to our sister in Christ. But we know it is only a temporary goodbye. Amen, brother, preach it, they said. And I said, this young woman was a bright light. And they said, yes, Lord. And I said, we don't know why such a bright light would be put out in this way. And they said, yes, we don't know why a bright light would be put out. And I, I said, uh, how long, oh, Lord, how long will you let parents bury their young? And it was just like that. Nobody said anything. Nobody said anything. I thought maybe I had hit a nerve or something, you know, and so I just kind of kept going. I said, this woman, she was a world-class athlete. This woman went to college full ride for a cheerleading scholarship. She watched what she ate to keep her body in good physical health. She never ate any meat. She loved running long distances and uh, this was, uh, you know, uh, the time for preachers to talk about that one passage, run the good race or something. I said that part, you know, like, a, like, like, uh, like every pastor would, you know, and I just went on and on. And, but I felt like the more I talked, the more I lost the room. And so uh, I, I decided to cut my remarks short and take my seat, you know, and some of y'all wonder why I don't still do that sometimes. But uh, <laughs> uh, I went and took my seat. And I sat down, and uh, the, the pastor, priest, whatever, sitting next to me, he just kind of leaned in to me, and I can still hear his voice in my ear when he said, Son, I think you're at the wrong funeral. <laughs> but listen, but listen, I'm 21, right? And I want so badly to be cool and accepted that sometimes when you're not, like, when cool people tell you things, you think it's just a joke you don't get, or it's like an insider thing. And so I didn't really understand what he was saying. And I said something like, oh, you're right about that. Shouldn't nobody be here. This is, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And he said, no, brother, I'm serious. You're at the wrong funeral. And he showed me the bulletin for this service and it said in loving memory of like uh, Anita Carruthers or something and uh, there was this picture of a woman on the front of this bulletin the biggest oldest woman you could possibly imagine she had never come close to a marathon before I guarantee you she was not a vegetarian either and I looked out at the crowd, her family, you know, and all those thoughts I was feeling about, you know, like this is not how it should be. They were feeling it too, let me tell you. We were equally confused 
in that moment, like something has gone terribly wrong in this moment, you know, and uh, I just, uh, I sat there for a minute, uh, kind of like it was all supposed to be happening, you know, like uh, nothing was wrong, and then at the opportune time, I just slipped out the same door that I had slipped in. I went across the hall to the other chapel. There were two chapels in this funeral home where I officiated the funeral that I was supposed to be officiating all along, but uh, I always regret, even to this day, I regret not paying attention to that feeling that something was wrong, that something was off. I regret not acting on that feeling that something wasn't quite right in this moment. And I, I realize now that every time I can remember not acting on that feeling, feeling it and then ignoring it, I wind up regretting something. I wind up being humiliated or disappointed or both uh, somehow. Some of you know what I mean. Have you, have you felt that? You felt that feeling that something's not right, that it, it's just not the way it should be or not the way it ought to be. Maybe you felt that feeling at a funeral. Maybe that funeral was recent. Maybe you felt that way when you watched the news. Can I get an amen? amen. Come on, y'all testified with me now. You know I like it. So <laughs> maybe, maybe you felt like something's not quite right when you, when you see our political process unfolding. Can I get a hallelujah from the congregation? <laughs> all right, so you're with me. We, we've all experienced these feelings, um, you know, of something not being quite right. Uh, you remember uh, watching the Super Bowl and uh, that one commercial with the puppy baby monkey thing on it, right? <laughs> you looked at it and you said, what'd you say? What'd you say? That just ain't right. That just ain't right. That's not the way it's ought to be, right? And so that's the same feeling I get when somebody puts ketchup on a hot dog or somebody orders a steak, well done. That's not right. That's not the way it ought to be. That's not the way it should be. Amen. Amen. All right. So the question I want to deal with today is the question about our shoulds and our oughts. That thing can go away any time now. <laughs> that thing can go away. I want us to see that when we use words like right and wrong, should and ought, we are making some very big, important assumptions. We are assuming when we say words like right, wrong, should and ought, that there is something that's capital S should, something that's capital O ought, there is something capital R right by which we judge everything else. There is something that's ultimately true if other things people do are untrue. Or if something's a little off, there's something that must be on or must be right, okay? So that's a big assumption if you really think about it because we live in a culture right now where the trendy thing to be is a little bit more relativistic. And I don't, I'm, if you're there, if that's where your mind is at, listen, I'm not saying this in a judgmental way. I want us to think through this. I've been there, man, and I know why people start to be relativists in terms of our morality because it keeps you from being a judgmental jerk like you've experienced religious people being. So I understand why you've gotten to the place that you're at as a, as a, a person that says, you know, my truth is my truth and yours is yours and let's get along and tolerate each other. Let's be good neighbors to each other. I like that in theory, but it doesn't work in reality. Because if you're a relativist about all morality, about what the shoulds and oughts should and ought be, then it only works to a certain extent. If you say that my truth is mine and your truth is yours, it's fine until your truth encroaches on theirs or theirs violates yours and you have to decide what's the higher truth here. Is there something higher by which we can judge morality? And so the, the secularist, the relativist might say, all of our shoulds, all of our oughts are man-made 
deals, right? So we, through our evolution, through our civilization uh, as hum human beings, we have developed constantly new and refined ideas of what should be and what shouldn't. And that's actually true to a certain extent. Many of our shoulds and oughts are absolutely contextual. They're absolutely bound by time and place. Am I, am I making sense here? So some of our shoulds and oughts do evolve with better thinking over time. Let me give you an example. These are just social mores, right, that, that evolve. So up until very recently, my marriage to Giovanna would have been illegal in many states because people looked at interracial relationships and said, that, that ain't how it should be. That's not how it ought to be. Now, thankfully, most people have evolved on the issue, not all. Uh, and I know there are some that still feel that way because most of them are, are in my family. And uh, <laughs> there are still people that believe it, but, but mostly we've gotten past that, and my marriage is acceptable, even though I'm white and Giovanna is Hispanic, and we accept these uh, situations now. So you can chalk some of our shoulds and oughts up to uh, relativism, right? But you can't do that with all of our shoulds and oughts. Another kind of extreme example is treatment of children. Right? So if, if you believe, as I hope you do, that children should be nurtured, protected, cared for, never abused, never neglected, um, never violated, you know, uh, and, and people should stick up for children because they're vulnerable and they need protection. Now, that's ju not just your truth, is it? Like, if, if you saw somebody mistreating or abusing a, a child in your midst, in your presence, even if that's that child's parent, even if that child's parent believes that that's their truth, that it's their right to hit their own child in a way that you deem to be inappropriate, wrong, a little off, I'm not sure you would say that's just your truth. I think you would say that's the truth. <laughs> that that child deserves protection, that child deserves better. And I hope that you would do something to stand in the gap for that child, to report that situation to the proper authorities, or maybe even in that moment to stick up for that child physically, right? Why? Because not all truths are relative. Not all shoulds are relative. You wouldn't say that, that, that the truth or the should that about children being protected is just bound by your own time and circumstance. It's bigger than that. It's a more universal truth. And there are many, many others that we could point out. This idea of justice, this idea of the vulnerable people not being oppressed by powerful people. You know, these are all things that we know to be true across our social norms and cultural mores, right? So, uh, so there are some truths that transcend that, and I think almost all of us would agree whether or not you call yourself a theist or an atheist or anything in between. So um, the Christian worldview's response uh, to, to, to this is that our, our morality, our human rights, dignity, all of these things are endowed on us by our creator. They come from God. The idea of human rights, a child's rights, they're there because God put them there. They don't just come from nowhere. There must be an explanation somehow. Uh, and our explanation is that it comes from God. And when our morality, our sense of morality is violated, or when a child is abused, or when human rights are violated or ignored, that is something that we call sin. That's what sin is in a nutshell, right? So sin is a word that's gotten a pretty bad rap. Saturday Night Live made a field day 
of sin back in a couple generations ago with Dana Carvey and the church lady. And if you're my age or older, you probably remember Dana Carvey and the church lady, you know, where, you know, sin became a joke. And I did a little bit of research on Reddit and some other social media sites this week and searching for what people are saying about sin. And basically they boil it down to like, sin is just anything fun that Christians want to control. Anything that feels good or tastes good or is good or, you know, looks good that you can have fun with in this life and Christians don't want you to, they say God doesn't want it for you and they call it a sin. That is not a a, a Christian, orthodox, or biblical view of sin at all. I just want to outline real quick what we mean when we say sin because it's gotten so confused. And it's a real quick just little five steps here. We're going to just blow through these really fast. These are the assumptions that lead us to an understanding of sin. First, we believe that God is creator. God created the universe as we know it. Second, if God is creator, then we are his creation. Everything that we can see and touch and perceive is God's creation. Third, is that we are unique in our awareness and our ability to steward creation. That is, we are unique among all other species that we know of in the universe in our self-awareness to be able to take care of God's good uh, creation, of God's world, right? Uh, Fourth, as stewards, we have largely failed. We've missed the mark. We have not done a good job of taking care of ourselves, taking care of each other, or taking care of the world, the creation. Fifth, this is the one people are going to struggle with. When a steward fails, a debt is owed. When a steward fails, a debt is owed. It's really not that complicated, guys, and it really shouldn't even be that controversial. Let me give you a couple of examples um, to make this Fifth point, imagine you're in a coffee house and there's a young man next to you at the table right next to you working on his laptop, typing away, and then he gets up, he has to go to the restroom, he asks you to watch his laptop for him, and you say, yeah, absolutely, it's fine, whatever. And uh, he gets up and goes to the restroom. And while he's gone, someone else comes and starts packing up his stuff in their bag. You see it happening, but you're either oblivious, you don't care, or you didn't, never really wanted to watch after the laptop in the first place, and uh, you, you let him walk away. What's going to happen when this guy comes back? There might be a fight. There might be legal action. There's definitely going to be at least a sense that something is owed. Both of you, whether you admit it or not, are going to feel like You are in his debt because you agreed to do something you did not do. Now, um, you know, secular folks or philosophers might look at this and say, that's not an apt analogy for what you're talking about here because we never agreed to watch God's laptop for him. (laughs) We never entered into this deal. You know, when God went to the bathroom, we never said, sure, we got it. You know, don't worry about it. And, uh, you know, we never, uh, you know, agreed. But let me just flip the script a little bit and say, Imagine you're in that same coffee shop, but instead of a man on a laptop, there's a woman with her four kids sitting next to you, four small children. She's trying to herd all of them, and they're eating their cake pops or whatever you have at Starbucks, and, you know, she's uh, melting down, as any mother of four would do in that situation, and she gets up uh, to get a napkin, or maybe just she needs a minute or whatever, um, and, uh, and, you know, she doesn't say anything to you, but you're right next to them. You're the closest person to them. You're an able-bodied adult. You know that she is their mother, and as she walks away, another creepy guy comes up and starts offering them candy and stuff, you know, starts trying to lure them away from the table. Now, if you were to do nothing in that moment and something awful was to happen to one of those children, are you really telling me that you wouldn't feel a sense of debt? You wouldn't feel indebted for the rest of your life? And carry that burden with you and go to, try to go to sleep at night with that child's mo- face on your mind? You know, that, that you would carry that 
burden with you for the rest of your life? Of course you would. Because you know intrinsically this principle that when you are aware and able to take care of something that's vulnerable, you should. And when you fail as a steward, there is a debt that is owed. Everyone knows this. We don't often speak it or apply it to our own circumstances. Now, um, this is how we understand sin in the Christian worldview. It's not the whole thing you've heard on Saturday Night Live or anywhere else. We believe that sin has gotten so pervasive as a problem that it has corrupted everyone. There's no one that's immune to the infection of sin. Everyone is, uh, carries this guilt around with us all the time. We've tried more religion. More religion doesn't help. We've tried more laws. More laws don't help. Better government. Better government doesn't seem to help. Um, and so we are, as Christians, re- reliant on the idea of grace as the only thing that changes people, the only thing that makes any difference anymore. I want to go over three quick things about what's, uh, how sin works and what forgiveness is. Uh, these are on your study guides. These are the blanks on your study guides that you can fill in if you're a group leader or in a chapter group. We'll go through this pretty quickly, and then you'll go and enjoy your spring break. So. Jesus tells this story uh, in Luke chapter 18. Oh, this is the first principle, sorry. Uh, you can't spell sin without I. You can't spell sin without I. Luke chapter 18, verse 9 is where we're going to be uh, for the next few minutes. It says, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and regarded others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, was praying thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, thieves, rogues, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all my income. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, but was beating his breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his home justified rather than the other. For all who exalt themselves will be humbled, but all who humble themselves will be exalted. So I'm not asking you to do this experiment, but I'm telling you what would happen if you took this story, showed it to your non-Christian friends, and took the word Pharisee out and tax collector out and asked them to identify the Christian in the story, they would point to the Pharisee every time. And that's a problem. That's just what would happen, and that's a problem. Because we are known more for standing up in churches going, thank God we're not like those people, than we are for kneeling in the back, not even looking up to heaven, saying, forgive us, be merciful unto us, for we are sinners. And Jesus is saying that the beginning of salvation is recognizing your own sin, recognizing the the ways that you yourself have created problems, and stop pointing fingers at other people. Our favorite thing to do sometimes in the church is to point fingers, maybe not at individuals, but at groups of people and say, they're the problem, that's what's wrong, right there. Conservative Christians look at liberals and go, they're the liberals are the problem in America. Liberal Christians look at conservatives and say the same thing about them, they're the problem in America. And nobody's looking at themselves. Nobody's kneeling, contrite, confessing, repentant of our own sin that's causing some of our own problems, that's causing our own brokenness. In 1908, the Times of London was a newspaper. They they sent out an open letter to all of Europe's greatest thinkers and philosophers and theologians, and they said they would publish whatever answers they got in response. And this is 1908, and they asked the question, Uh, in this open letter, what's wrong with the world? What's wrong with the world? 
They got all kinds of answers from different kinds of thinkers. Some of them said it's the human ego. The ego was a big deal at that time. Uh, Some said it's religion. Some said it's pride and greed. But the great Christian author G.K. Chesterton wrote a four-letter, a four-word letter to the Times saying, Dear sirs, I am. Dear sirs, I am. If you look at the world and see or feel like something's wrong or not quite right with the world and your first answer isn't well it's me you're not following Jesus yet you're following something else and this works in every relationship not just your relationship with God but your relationships with other people as well the same principle applies it works in marriage Tim Keller, uh, the pastor in New York, uh, we talk about him some. He, in his book about marriage, uh, he says this about having a great marriage. He says, if two spouses each say, I'm going to treat my self-centeredness as the main problem in our marriage, you have the prospect of a truly great marriage. If we each treat our self-centeredness as the main problem in our marriage, you have a prospect for a great marriage. Admit your own shortcomings. That's the beginning, right? Second thing I want to say is that every sin creates or leaves a scar. Every sin leaves a scar. What I mean with this is that every wrongdoing does harm. Every uh, sin does damage. And I think we all, again, intrinsically know this. You know that when somebody sins against you in some way, they owe you something. Again, this isn't rocket science here. This is just how you feel. This is our human experience. Somebody wrecks your car, you know, and they're driving, they wreck your car. They owe you something. Legally, they owe you something. But if somebody wrecks your heart, you also feel like they owe you something. If they take you for granted or cheat on you or betray you, you carry this feeling as though a debt has been created. Or if you wrong someone else, you're probably, if you're a human being, you're probably going to carry a feeling as though you owe them something. This is just how the human heart works. A debt is created by every wrong. Uh, So, we can uh, reach a a resolution for these damages in one of three ways. When the debt is created by sin, you can either, uh, when someone owes you something, you can make them pay, which usually means punishing them in some way. You make them pay. You can defer the debt that they owe you, which basically just means (laughs) passive aggressiveness, right? So you just kick the can down the road. It doesn't do anything for the debt itself. In fact, Any married person in here would tell you that deferring the debt, it just creates more interest. These accounts are revolving accounts, right? They just just accrue more and more interest over time the more you kick them down the road. Amen, married people. Amen. Amen. All the husbands. <laughs> That's funny. All right. So, uh, so anyway, uh, the uh, single people are like, what? Marriage is great. I can't wait. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so you can, you can uh, make them pay. You can defer the debt. Or you can assume the debt. Assuming the debt is forgiveness. And assuming the debt is not sentimental. It hurts. Forgiveness always hurts. To forgive someone is to inflict pain on yourself because you assume a debt that was not yours to pay. It doesn't just disappear. You assume it. And it hurts you in some way 
to do that. But that's what forgiveness is. Now, if what Jesus says about the nature of God is true, and I'm persuaded to believe that it is true, Jesus seems to know God pretty well, um, it, it would lead us to believe that God is relational. God is a relational person, right? So what does this mean? It means the same principle applies to our relationship with God. When you sin against God, you do harm to your relationship with God. You do damage to maybe even God himself. You harm God or your relationship with him. And so this creates some kind of a debt in your relationship with God. Now, uh, God has options here, just like we do when somebody sins against us. God can punish us uh, and make us pay. God can uh, distance himself from us and withdraw, which sounds like hell to me. Or there's a third way. Romans 6 says that if God's choice is to punish us, then the only appropriate punishment for the debt that we've all accrued is death. Death. Right? Right here. It says it right here. In the most maddening sentence in the whole Bible. Let me tell you why. For the wages of sin is death. Can anybody tell me why that's a maddening sentence? It's terrible grammar, and for 2,000 years, nobody's fixed it. You with me? What is wages? Wages, plural noun. What is is? Singular verb. Come on, you guys. It's the word of God. Let's get it right. The wage of sin is death, or the wages of sin are death. Hallelujah? Hallelujah. All right, thank you. Anyway, the wage of sin is death, right? So that sounds harsh. For us, especially in our relativistic mentality, it sounds really harsh. Like, why do I deserve to die? I'm a pretty good guy. Because we've all been told we're pretty good guys from the moment we could walk. Like, they, got, they gave us trophies for taking our first steps. Like, you cross the street without getting hit by a car, they give you ribbons in first grade. You know, like, it's, they don't set a real high bar for goodness anymore, right? But you've been told, you're just, you are just a good person, and your self-esteem matters more than anything else. Since you were little, since I was little, I was told the same thing. And so this idea is completely foreign. But if you'll just stop for a minute, detach yourself from that lie, <laughs> and think for a second about all the things you've done, man. I know it's hard, and it sucks, and nobody likes to do it. But when I pause for just a second and force myself to kind of make a mental list of all the stuff I've done to do harm, all the things I've left undone, all the times I've dishonored my parents, all the times I've dishonored my wife, all the times I've taken life itself for granted, all the times I've sat and enjoyed an amazing meal without an ounce of gratitude in my heart as if I deserve it, as if I'm entitled to this meal and this bottle of wine or whatever, as if I can't stop for a minute and say, God, thank you. Every single thing I take for granted, all the times I've taken God for granted, all the times I've, I've objectified the bodies of his daughters throughout my life. His daughters, man, I have a daughter. The more I think about it, the more this starts to make sense. I'm not going to get Southern Baptist on you today, but this starts to make sense. That maybe all things equal, I, I do deserve what Paul says I deserve. But this isn't 
the end of the story. Paul says God could have punished us. God could have withdrawn from us, which is hell. Or God could forgive us. This is where we get to the third and final point today. That the cross is an olive branch. The cross is an olive branch. It's a ton of confusion about what the cross means. A ton of confusion about what the blood of Christ means. I imagine that just about everybody who's outside of church, who doesn't go to church, I imagine that they all kind of think that it's weird that Christians, here's what I think they believe we think about the cross. I think they think we sit here and talk about how angry God was about what a bunch of screw-ups we are, how ticked off God was, and we just left God no option but to shed some blood, man. God was just bloodthirsty and angry, and he had to take it out on somebody, but instead of beating us up, God beat his son up, and it's, you know, because God had no other choice because he's kind of a hothead and he's got a temper. You know, this is the kind of God we project to the world sometimes, and it's really disturbing when you think about it. Because this is not at all what the Bible says happened at the cross. This is not at all what the writers of the New Testament believed to have happened. Is God really that much of a hothead, you know? Is God really that much of a bully? And yeah, that is what drove a lot of ancient religions. That's why it's important to understand what's happening in the Old Testament before you get to the New. There was this idea that God wanted blood because he was angry at you. But listen. The New Testament flips the script completely. Jesus didn't die on the cross because God was mad at you. Jesus died on the cross because God was mad at sin. God was sick of being separated from you by the sins of the world. And he was sick of sitting by while we tried to work it out on our own, and instead of making us pay for what we owed, instead of withdrawing and just leaving us to our own devices, God said, I'm coming. I'm coming, and I'm going to pick up the tab. I'm going to pay what is owed, and we're going to be together again. That's the meaning of the cross. Don't get weirded out by what you think you know about the cross. Go back to the scriptures and read what the first Christians said, like Paul in Colossians 1, where he says, God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the cross. By making peace through the cross. The people that I had on my heart this week as I wrote this message were people that I know are struggling to forgive because I know that there are relationships right here in this room that are hanging on by a thread because you, don't, you haven't figured out how to forgive each other. There's husbands that haven't forgiven their wives for something that happened a long time ago, and you haven't forgiven because, frankly, that resentment gives you a little bit of power. It gives you a leg up in the relationship. There are wives that haven't forgiven their husbands, parents that haven't forgiven their children, and vice versa. Friends that are not really friends anymore because of unforgiveness. You guys were on my heart this week. I'm one of you, right? So I also harbor a bunch of resentment. But here's my experience as a pastor and just as a person. Whenever we fail to forgive, whenever forgiveness seems out of reach for us, whenever we've been wronged and it's so hard to pick up that debt and let it go, my experience is that it's because there's part of us that hasn't been forgiven either. We haven't received forgiveness. 
An unforgiving heart is almost always an unforgiven heart. And it's not that God hasn't tried to forgive you. It's not that God hasn't extended mercy to you. It's that you've been the Pharisee standing up in front of everybody saying, look, I'm good. I'm one of the good guys. I'm not like that guy over there. I don't know what his deal is, but we're good. And when you take this posture, the grace of God can never penetrate your heart and soul. And you remain unforgiving. And when you walk around with a lack of mercy in your heart, this whole, you know, lately we were talking about refugees in our culture and I heard so much vitriol and hate from Christians about foreign refugees coming from war-torn countries. And politics aside here, you guys, if there's not an ounce of mercy in what you're saying, it's because you haven't absorbed the mercy of God in your own heart. Absorbing God's mercy for yourself, realizing your need for that forgiveness for yourself is the beginning of becoming a forgiving person. You might know about the grace of God. You might know chapter and verse where to find it in the Bible, but you haven't absorbed it yourself. You think it's for other people. I'm telling you it's for you. It's for me. Back in the 80s and 90s, uh, there was a guy named Gary Ridgway. He was known as the Green River Killer. Um, he became the most prolific serial killer that we know of in America. He killed over 90 women, mostly young teenage runaways. Or 90. He just did horrible things to them after he killed them. And when he was finally caught and convicted on his sentencing day, the families of those girls finally got their chance to speak to him directly. And most of them did what most of us would do. Most of those mothers and sisters, fathers, they stood up and they cursed this man. And they told him they hope he rots, they hope he goes to hell. And I have no judgment about people that say things like that. I'd probably say something similar, given the situation, thinking about my own little girl or some of y'all's little girls that I love as my own daughters. It's horrific. There was one man who showed up at court that day with something else on his mind. I want to show you a video clip now. It's very short. It's like a minute long. Things are not as they should be. They are not the way they ought to be. We all know it. We're all equally confused by it every day. Debts are owed. Somebody owes you and you owe somebody else. What are we going to do about it? Are we going to keep fighting it out until we collect? Are we going to keep ignoring it and let the debt accrue interest? Oh, are we going to be forgiven? And are we going to forgive? 
forgiveness, the grace of God, it's not just for guys like Gary Ridgway. It's for you and me. You might not have ever killed someone, but you've done some awful things, as have I. We are all sinners in need of forgiveness. The cross. The cross is Jesus standing at your trial saying, Sir, you are forgiven. Ma'am, you are forgiven. The debt has been paid. Nothing is owed. You are free. I'm praying you won't let this moment pass today. I know we're running long and you're probably hungry. You want to go to lunch, get the kids and all that stuff. Listen, right now, let the grace of God soak in. Let, let the forgiveness of God sink into your heart. Let the tears come if they must, but just know that this feeling you have right now, this conviction you feel in your heart, it's the beginning of something greater. You can't really experience the resurrection of Easter until you die with Jesus on the cross, die to who you were, so that you can become who you're created to be. This is God's will for your life, for your marriage, for your relationships, and for your faith. Would you pray with me? I thank you for your grace. Humble us. Give us the courage that we need to accept and receive your mercy. Help us, God, to be like the tax collector and not the Pharisee, humble and broken, to receive your forgiveness now. In Jesus' name, amen.